Welcome to Hot Seating, the drama education podcast with myself, Avian Finnegan. In this podcast, we interview well-known drama practitioners and community artists. We reflect on their drama experiences through the lens of the drama strategies. Like you define the space within your classroom, we are defining the space for conversations about drama in education, not just in Ireland, but all over the world. This is a podcast brought to you by the Association of Drama in Education in Ireland, also known as the ADEI. This week I am hot-seating John O'Toole. John has been teaching drama and applied theatre for over 50 years, to all ages and on all continents. From secondary English teaching he moved via theatre and education into drama education, especially of teachers. He has written and co-written over 20 text and research books on drama and the arts, and in 2010 was the lead writer for arts and for drama in the new Australian curriculum. He became Professor of Drama and Applied Theatre at Griffith University, Queensland, then Chair of Arts Education at the University of Melbourne. In 2014, he was awarded the Order of Australia, AM, for services to drama education. So pour yourself a cup of tea, sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with John O'Toole. You're very welcome to the podcast, John O'Toole. Thank you so much for meeting uh, me today. I know there was so much toing and froing over time differences and everything. So I really appreciate uh, you taking the time today. How are you? I'm fine and it's no problem for me. We have these problem, these time issues all the time in Australia and uh, worldwide. So this is just part of the course, really. So hello and welcome. And it's thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast. So, John, can you tell me what is your still image? What is your first memory of drama? It's a bit of a composite memory. I don't actually have one of those um, single single image flashes, but uh, my first encounters with drama were... um, Two, really. The first one, I suppose, is still an image. It's an image of me as a 12-year-old boy roped into a house drama competition, having to rush onto the stage, calling, the manuscript, it's gone! Uh, And uh, this was a bit of a play that, I think it was a play by the Brothers Chapek, but... um, we were um, we were pretty awful. I think we came last in the competition, but it uh, hooked me on the idea of I rather like this drama thing and running on stage and getting everybody's attention. I thought it was pretty nice. And um, then I couldn't have been quite such a failure as everybody else because uh, I, later that year I was asked by the um, school uh, head of English to to play Jessica in the school production of um, of um, Merchant of Venice, which uh, it was a school with a terrific drama tradition. And um, so I was kind of honored. And I was just getting into that when the girl who was playing Portia couldn't really cope. So I was then asked to play Portia. I got drafted into playing Portia, age 13, with a fairly unbroken voice and trying to look like a lady. Um, it was an all boys school. <laughs> and so I actually, I had my first days of a full fledged, full fledged Shakespeare play age 13. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, and it completely hooked me on to, uh, on drama and the classics. And, um, I only remember that I, I think I sort of made a reasonable fist of it, but, uh, th- some critic, uh, from the school staff did say that, uh, my Portia wasn't nearly as good as the Rosalind of um, some kid 10 years earlier called Paul Schofield. So <laughs> I didn't know, I'd not, never heard of Paul Schofield then, but then, <laughs> so I didn't feel too bad about being. Uh, if you're going to be compared, compared to anybody, I think you're okay there. <laughs> so anyway, that, that got me into drama. I'm sorry, it's a long-winded response. So I'll try and keep it a bit shorter. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, that got you into drama and then where 
where did you go from there? How did you end up where you are? What's the kind of the route you? Uh, well, I went, I went to university and and tried to get into drama there, but uh, my first effort at auditioning was um, with a terrifying group of uh, young men, uh, led by Ian McKellen, and so I didn't even I didn't even get through the audition, and that put me right off any idea of becoming an actor ever again. Wow. Uh, but uh, I, I became an English teacher and um, uh, was always interested in drama and doing a bit of, you know, drama production in secondary schools and needed to know more about it. I realised I didn't, I'd never heard of drama education and um, I, did, I just knew I needed to know more about drama. So completely blind, I signed on for a course that happened to be on the staff table um an evening course by some guy i'd never heard of um uh called gavin bolton who um uh who ran a course with some woman called dorothy hethcote and uh and i'm afraid that was it from then on i was uh um totally uh, i'll probably talk more about gavin and dorothy later but uh I be, and I was at that time, um, I think I was sort of head of English and, uh, but finding English a bit stultifying as it was already beginning to get, uh, to lose the excitement of, of English in the, pro, in the days of, um, I'm afraid the 60s were really heady days. And uh, for, uh, but, but black papers were coming in and English was suddenly turning into a, a, a mechanistic subject. Uh, so, so eventually I switched to drama and switched to, uh, I had some time in theatre and education too, which was thanks to Gavin and Dorothy, and um, came out to Australia to teach drama education. And from then on, I've been doing that basically. So, and you haven't looked back? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I spent a fair time, uh, not exactly looking back, but not knowing where I, where I was. During the first couple of years of uh, of Gavin and Dorothy's teaching, uh, it completely wrecked my whole my own teaching. I was a pretty confident, brash sort of uh, up there teacher, I thought, and uh, then suddenly trying to take on board what I was learning through them about drama was quite quite confronting and um, I found my own teaching fell apart because I was trying to do my old ways of teaching and find the new ways too and learn how to be a good a good listener instead of just a good talker and um, so for a couple of years I was a bit I was a bit lost but I at that time I was also getting interested in and into TIE and theatre and education which um, which stood me in good stead, and uh, I ended up getting a year off and writing the first book on TIE, uh, and that sort of put me away from English and onto drama. Sent you on your way. And were any of your other family members into drama at all, or are you the only one? <laughs> not 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 greatly. No, um, they've all been always interested in the arts, uh, but. Um, and my children, uh, only one of them has sort of seriously thought about performing or being an actor. A couple of the others have run a mile from it when they say. So, um, no, I mean, we, uh, my, actually, my, my wife is uh, an ex-production um, manager for a number of local small theatre companies. And so she's, she's steeped in the theatre world. And that's actually been good for me because it's kept me involved with the the local Australian and Brisbane theatre. Do you think that's important when you're working in, in, in drama education or theatre education that you, you are very much steeped in that kind of performance aspect too? Yeah, look, I think it helps. Uh, certainly it helped make things clear for me if I was going to get too sucked into the pedagogy. I mean, I started at, at the pedagogical end uh, with, with Gavin and Dorothy, but I'd always, I'd also been interested in uh, producing and directing uh, plays, and when I, as a TIE actor, uh, so it is actually useful to be able to be part of the local theatre scene, even if only just on the edge of it, 
so that the local actors know who you, who you are if I want to come and ask them something and all that kind of thing. What is the local actor scene like where you are? Uh, patchy, um, pretty strong. Uh, uh, Australia had a great renaissance in theatre in the 70s and 80s, which was great for me because I was just getting finding my feet then. And um, Brisbane had a... It, Brisbane was always a subsidiary. It was always a tryout city, Melbourne and Sydney, where the real action is, where all the stars emigrated to. But no, Brisbane has a strong local theatre now, a good professional theatre. And um, uh, so it, it's still a good support system for me, I think. And, and there's always been a very close uh, relationship between the drama education scene in uh, in Australia and particularly in Queensland, of which I think I've been a fairly significant player uh, and keeping keeping that close to the profession and not having those, some of those silly uh, fights that other people have where there's something called theatre and something called drama and uh, never the twain shall meet. We all know we're part of the same piece. Well, that's exactly it. And that's something that I think we're trying to do with this podcast as well as to, to make sure that lots of different members of the community have a voice here and not just specifically one or the other drama or theatre, yeah. you know, and also like it, it applied and, and community and, you know, all sure. sorts that we all get a look in. <laughs> that, that's great. I think it, it's really important for an organisation like yours. We've tried to make that and I have to say, been very successful in making that in Queensland and Drama Australia. They're both very strong organisations because they are absolutely um, inclusive and um, and communal. And you can be a teacher or an educator or an applied theatre worker and uh, or an actor, and you're welcome as part of the part of the organisation. Yeah, I agree. And tell me, in terms of um... I suppose more more pedagogy based um, areas. So we're, I'm going to ask you about your teacher in role moment. So a standout moment for you as a practitioner, and that can be, I suppose, in, in either context. You know, TIE, DIE, um, whatever, whatever works. I've got a number, of course, over so many years, I've got quite a few standout moments. Now, the one that I have actually written about that is a total standout moment for me, I do a lot of teacher in role, and I, um, it, it actually figured in this moment, but I was working in South Africa uh, 10 years before apartheid finished, so I shouldn't technically have been there anyway, um, working with a class of... 20 black teenagers who were doing some process drama in a classroom drama. And we were being watched by about eight, 70 or 80, nearly all white teachers. And uh, I mean, it's pretty fierce. I, I, well, I look back on it and quail and think I was crazy at the time. Um, but, um, you know, the confidence of youth. And uh, I, uh, um, so in a moment of extreme rashness, I thought this will be really good to uh, turn the tables and let's get these uh, serried ranks of watchers actually taking part in the drama. So with a couple of... Uh, the, the kids had chosen the topic of the drama, which was um, dealing with drugs. Of course, that's sort of thing they do. And... Um, Anyway, it ended up that uh, the teachers agreed to be part of it. The kids agreed, well, slightly puzzled kids agreed to let them be part of it. And they were amazing, those children just um, having the bravery to suddenly be outnumbered by a whole bunch of grown-up white adults. And uh, anyway, they... We, we got together and I did some very simple get, getting to know you exercises with between the two groups. And then I thought, well, I'll really turn the tables. We weren't dealing with criminal drug addicts was by this time what the topic had turned into. And so I made all the adults be 
uh, criminal drug addicts waiting for admission to a new uh, institution. And the kids, social workers, teachers, uh, so social workers, police, and doctors with different orientations, social workers having a caring orientation, police having a non-caring one, especially in South Africa, and um, uh, doctors having a dispassionate one. And then all I asked the kids to do was, sorry, the, the, um, the staff, the, the doctors, to get these adults who were all sitting down, sitting down in lonely spaces, um, getting themselves enrolled in their, in, in, in their particular forms of uh, obsession or drug addiction and so on. All I had asked them to do was to get, get them into the room next door. That took an hour of when I did almost nothing except stay with my eyes, uh, my eyes wide open as uh, amazing things happened that weren't actually technically allowed in South Africa at the time. So social workers would um, cradle and sing to their uh, charges, trying to get them up on their feet and um, doing something and and stroking them and uh, the cops were throwing them around and the doctors were asking impertinent questions about their personal lives and poking them around physically as well. It's quite amazing, all sorts of things happened. Nobody came out of role. Uh, and um, it was just an hour of extraordinary experience that actually probably was, well, was, was illegal at the time. So, Again, I'm sorry, that's a long story. No, but, uh, that is amazing. Like, that's amazing. Uh, I can't even, I can't even imagine teaching in that environment and what that was like. Well, I mean, I, I've had many wonderful experiences teaching in South Africa, mostly in townships, working with uh, young people's theatre groups and so on. So, but um, how did the was... adults? How did the adults respond to that? Well, they all, none of them came out of role. Uh, at the end, I mean, every, there was a collect, collective sigh of, oh, my God, when we all did come out of role, when I cut the drama. Um, and there was a long, long conversation. And it was a very interesting one. Some of them thought it was absolutely amazing, because this was 1982, and um, apartheid was still well and truly with us. And... Um, most of and a lot of a lot of the of the adults had actually really pushed the kids to try and make it tougher for the kids. And um, I noticed a couple of the more boisterous of them of the men had just made it physically very difficult for the kids to to manage for the police to manage them and to get them into the uh, other room. So it was they they had actually absolutely being complicit in the drama and everybody kind of acknowledged that some of them I think then backed off and thought oh my god what have I done here I'm not sure whether this is where I really want to be in my life but um the the woman who was organizing the the whole my whole tour uh she was the um president of a local drama education association a white woman um who uh, she she said uh, she felt it was an important moment for them, even those who were uncomfortable. It was, I'd say. It was. I've, I've gone on with that. It, it was that, yeah, they were forced to deal with aspects. Not, I mean, the thing about that was that it wasn't just drama happening there. There were things happening, real life things that were really tough on on everybody. And the kids thought, uh, the, the, the thing I hadn't mentioned was the kids all had a ball. They all, uh, at the end, they were so excited. I mean, this has never happened to them before and never would again. Yeah. But, uh, and that's had a, what's great about, for me, that's what's great about drama. These things happen that might never happen yeah. again. And that's that, right, yes. They give you that, I suppose, opportunity to do things and to, to feel things and try things that you might never be able to feel or try, you know? Well, that's right. I mean, I can't imagine the the little 15-year-old girl who was sitting cradling and stroking the bald head of a middle-aged white man uh, and singing to him for about 10 minutes to try and get him on his feet. 
<laughs> she she could never have had that kind of experience and couldn't have imagined having it. Wow. But she was amazing to watch. And, and you spoke already about Dorothy uh, Heathcote and Gavin Bolton. Um, so I'm going to ask you now who... An, in, an influential person, I suppose, who has uh, impacted on your practice or shaped your practice over the years? Well, it was more than anybody else. I mean, there have been lots. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit of a sponge for taking influence. I don't, I don't absolutely believe in uh, doing, doing things my own way. I take any, take any good ideas wherever I can get them. Mm. Uh, there have been lots of really important influence in my life, uh, mostly in the drama education field in the early days, Cecily O'Neill and uh, still all the way through my career, Jonathan Neelands has been a really important influence in my life. More recently, Peter O'Connor and people like that. But no, I mean, for me, Gavin is the seminal influence. Gavin turned my teaching upside down and he did it because he was the total opposite of anything that I thought I was a teacher. He was quiet restrained, absolutely low key, never raised his voice, usually used this kind of gesture, uh, very, very precise and dainty, and had a mind like a total razor, completely critical and unsentimental. And more than anybody else, I think, certainly for me, and I, I think for the field, he actually created the intellectual rationale for drama education or for the British style drama education. Uh, Dorothy did amazing and extraordinary things and uh, we all gasped in wonderment. Um, but it was Gavin that actually, and I was lucky enough to be with him for two years working intensely with him. And um, uh, he was the one who actually pulled it all together into a, into a practice, into a theorized practice. Probably the most influential uh, writing I've done because it was needed at the time and it's also continued to be influential was a book we wrote 30, well, I wrote with a colleague, Brad Hazeman, 30 years ago called Drama Wise, uh, now rewritten completely and uh, reconceptualized as Drama Wise reimagined. Because what it did, we were scared of, in Australia, of the tensions between theatre and drama getting into our own drama world, our community. We had a very strong unified community, whether they did process drama or they did school theatre or whatever. And uh, so Brad and I took an idea from Gavin and Dorothy, actually, the idea that all drama has got a number, a finite number of common elements, and whatever kind of drama is being done, those elements must all be present if you're going to call it drama. Now, this is something that any person in the street knows, that you they know a piece of drama when they see it. So they could see a piece of children's dramatic play, and they say, oh, those kids are doing drama and they can see a production of Hamlet and they say, that's drama. Well, this had been almost forgotten by the um, combatants in what we saw as a very toxic time in drama education. So we wrote, we, we I tried to identify what those elements were. Aristotle had had a pretty good go 2000 years ago and we just sort of built on that. Um, and came out with drama wise just at the right time which basically said that anything that's got all of these elements you call drama and so we looked at it in the book through pieces of theater through pieces of process uh, processual drama and that's been a very influential book uh, in Australia uh, maybe elsewhere too and it's something, I guess, that Brad and I are most proud of. In terms of like training, and that's the, I know training is a bit of um, 
a funny word, but you know, I was educating drama uh, educators or you know, theater educators. How yeah. how do you think is the best? What do you think is the best model? Because you've mentioned that you did that intense time we spent with Gavin and how impactful that's been. Um, I mean, now you know, I'm a, I lecture in drama education and it's yeah, you right. know a, a lecture based kind of situation. I, I think we have less opportunities now to observe each other I think in, in the sense that you're speaking about and it just sounds like a, such a, a wonderful way to learn you know uh well for me it was I I did it, it, my first uh that that first course with Gavin wasn't a full-time course it was only two evenings a week mm. over or maybe one evening a week uh and occasional weekends that kind of thing which I was working as a full-time teacher and that was actually marvellous to be able to go from the class straight into the class, sorry, from his class straight into the classroom and right, the stuff straight away. and come back and say, Gavin, I can't do it and all that yeah. kind of stuff. <laughs> That's the best way though, isn't it? Oh, I think so. Yeah, you've got to have the practice there along with the training. I don't know how you're able to manage things in Ireland. I found... I found teach. I mean, doing teach training all, all my nearly all my career, I found it getting much more difficult over the years. We used to have much more contact time with the students. We used to have much more opportunity to take them into uh, teaching situations informally and practice stuff and bring kids in than you can now. Everything's so much more. In Australia, anyway, so much more pressured, so much more formalized, and the time time constraints are brutally worse, and you have to do so much more reading. I agree, um, I agree, and also, also it's quite difficult to to find, I suppose, practitioners who use process drama as well, educational drama that you can show them. So a lot of my students are going out into the field and coming back and saying, yeah, "I'm seeing great drama, but I'm not seeing." educational drama or I'm not seeing what I want to see yeah, you know um, I think this is very much depends where you are we're yeah. lucky enough in Queensland there there's been a tradition of that's kind of developed as process drama has developed we've developed with it and we've developed it so there are a lot of teachers using process drama not so much in other states if you go to Western Australia you'll never see a process drama lesson you'll be very lucky to see anybody ever use teacher and role or anything like that um, and one just has to kind of, I think as a teacher trainer, you just have to accept that and, and let people know that this is, is how it will be and that you cut your coat according to your cloth. And if you're a junior teacher, you going into a new school, you can't completely change the expectations of the staff and the kids too. Not immediately. And, uh, <laughs> you no, know, it's it's a long, long, slow process. I actually spend a lot of time talking to the students about um, slowly, slowly uh, catch a monkey. You know, so true. It's so true. Um, and then, so you know, you, you've mentioned there a few times about making a mess and then coming back and sorting it out and talking and figuring things out and practicing and trying. Um, did you ever have a time where it all went wrong? Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, look, all the time. I mean, one of the joys, one of the great things of drama, and it was one of the things that stuck with me from Gavin early on. He always said that no drama lesson is ever an absolute failure, from which I took immediately that, yeah, OK, I can learn from it. And that's absolutely true. And to be honest, that has really been my watchword, that the best, the best kind of drama you can have is a failure that you can learn from, or at least you, not any any time you come out thinking you've done a perfect drama lesson, you haven't learned anything. Whereas, um, and yes, I mean, I still have a case. I still, I still do a little bit of practical work and still sometimes pull on my face. But the the astonishing thing is that you they will find and you find that you you leave a class as you think as a wreck and come back and think I can't face these kids anymore in the morning in the morning they're there with shining face just saying how are we doing drama this morning and uh, <laughs> and they've got something out of your lesson even if you didn't think they had and so um, yeah. that's been a bit of a watchword for me actually and um, uh, and and a watchword of being able to 
constantly improve and learn, I think. That's but yes, I mean, I've, I've, I've had some catastrophes. I, I guess I'd better fess up to one of the biggest catastrophes was, uh, again, I did write about this in Peter Duffy's book of misadventures. Um, a, uh, I was doing theatre and education, working as a team, and we were quite interested in the idea of TIE, pro at that time, TIE programmes, uh, which were called adventure programmes, where the kids didn't know they were dramas, like Boyle's Invisible Theatre. They, the kid, you came into the classroom and the kids thought you were for real. Oh, wow. And I'd seen a couple of really inspirational programmes of this kind, a uh, couple uh, run at the Bolton Octagon. And so I thought we'd like to try this. And I did this um, two-hander uh, with a colleague about uh, where he was a social worker trying to, talking to the children as they thought they were getting a lesson on um, what's it like to be a social worker from a professional social worker. Uh, and he was describing this particularly difficult and violent case that he was having to deal with at the time. He then went out of the room on a pretext and I, as the difficult and violent case, came crashing into the room and I totally mistimed my entry and came in far too hard. This wild man in a donkey jacket and rough workers uh, uh, coat and boots and everything uh, and uh, shouting, where's, where's that social worker? Where's that David Griffiths? Where is he? And um, the kids totally froze. They thought I was for real. They thought they were pinned in a room with a madman uh, or, or certainly a dangerous criminal. And um, there, was, there was nobody spoke, nobody spoke, nobody moved. Nobody would speak. And I tried to soften it, but the damage was done. I tried to walk closer into them and they all shrank away. Afterwards, two of the kids admitted that they were thinking of jumping out of the window, which was a second floor window. And uh, luckily, uh, David came to, oh, I, I think I, I bolted and think that I've stuffed this up totally. And I bolted and said, David, come and save me. And um, <laughs> I have to say that that put me off the idea of invisible theater forever. Yes. Uh, <laughs> You've never gone uh, to and again, I, I got no sympathy from, uh, I was still working fairly closely with Gavin at that time. I got no sympathy from him. He said, uh, um, he said that, that you should trust drama. Don't, don't try and con kids. It's never needed. Dra drama will make its own. I mean, and he reminded me of the, the famous Wordsworth quote that it's a voluntary suspension of disbelief makes drama. And it's got to be voluntary, and so yeah. And I, so anyway, that's that's one of my more memorable experiences. Wow, I, I personally am a little bit sensitive to the, to immersive theatre and to that kind of invisible theatre type thing as well. You know, I find it quite di difficult to experience that type of theatre. You know, um, I've had quite yeah. jar jarring experiences going to those things. Look, I um, think that's right, and I'm actually I I, I feel now now. <laughs> partly because of that experience, but generally because of seeing it working. I think it's always, it's a power thing that um, it's only fair to share the power with the audience or the participants. That if you come in and they think you're real and you think, and, uh, and, you, and you know you're not, that makes a really unfair power imbalance, particularly if you're going to do things that, that are uncomfortable as often in immersive theatre you do. And, um, and I think it's, it's, there's gotta be some kind of contractual agreement between the performers and the audience, or particularly if they're a participatory audience, yeah. that the audience, it's only fair on the audience to let them know that um, they're, in for they're, going, they're going to be stuff that they're expected <laughs> to do. They need to know exactly what it is. Yeah, but I mean, you can keep things for surprise, but you've got to get that agreement. Yeah, 
Hmm. It's like, the buy-in, isn't it? The buy-in. Like, yeah, that's thank you. Yeah, it's a big word. The buy-in is exactly hmm. right. Oh, thanks for sharing that though. That that's really interesting. And it's a good lesson, really, just in case we were all like just in case I was going. <laughs> you never know what you're going to come up with sometimes, but it is good to to read these. I must I want to read that book you mentioned, actually. That's great. Uh, it's um yeah, it's a lovely book by Peter Duffy. It's a collection of um drama teachers' stories of their their catastrophes. Uh, uh, I think it's called um, what, what Was I Thinking Of is the title of the book, but then mm-hmm. Misadventures in Drama Education. So do read it, yeah. Mm. And, um, so then, you know, um, I, we were talking at the start of this interview and, and you were saying some of, some of the questions at the end of, of the podcast are kind of the more challenging ones. And um, I suppose what this one I think is a bit of a big one, but I think it's an important question to include as well, you know, the future of drama, what should be next and also what you think will actually be next. So what should be next, but what actually will be next? Um, have you any thoughts? To okay. Uh, firstly, I don't think there's anything, it, it's not linear. The future of drama, like, like presents and futures, is not one single linear path. We've been doing this for the last X years. We were doing this in the 70s. We we're doing that in the 90s. We we're doing this in the 20s. Uh, what's next? There are lots and lots and lots of things happening. Some, a lot of, a lot of what is happening is backtracking and recycling and rethinking. A lot of the progress in drama has happened by recycling and rethinking and kind of spirals of uh, of progress. And and I think that that's quite important to to realize that drama is such a such a impotent creature in the systems in which we operate, particularly those of us working in schools and colleges and so on, that we have to, in any case, um, cut our coat according to our cloth, as I was saying earlier, and we have to manage what we do, not according to our ideals of what, what comes next, but of how we can make this new, how we can make this our own, and from that fashion, something that is new. And I think that as drama teachers, we're very good at mostly. Mm-hmm. And because we have to do it all the time, it's part of the survival techniques of the job. Um, I think also that there has been one enormous, for me anyway, one enormous shift is in, in conceptualization, in the um, development of applied theater and the Fortunately, close relationship, well, more than close relationship, I see applied theatre, including drama education. So applied theatre workers and drama educators do work together pretty closely, particularly internationally. And I think that, I mean, for me, there are all sorts of amazing opportunities there that can feed back into your average classroom. I think the other thing is, of course, there are, as we're such a weak group and we're always being pushed out of curriculums, uh, you, you, I mean, in, in England, they haven't been in the curriculum for 30 years officially. Uh, do you, you uh, drama yeah, is in the Irish curriculum? It's in the primary it is, school curriculum, yeah, but um, if there, it's undergoing a bit of change at the minute. Um, so I'm not sure what that space is going to look like in the next couple of years. So I think we're well, hoping, we're hoping and, and, <laughs> Could be good, could be bad, but yeah. you'll survive. Um, we're, we're coming out of what's been a really good time because uh, after m- many years of fighting, we, we hitched our wagon in Australia, not to English, we hitched our wagon to the arts. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's been a real battle to get with, with fellow artists, of course, um, our, our visual arts and music didn't want... Um, uh, fellow travelers like uh, dance and drama coming in, especially because they were so popular, they're taking all the kids' uh, elective slots. And um, but uh, for years we've been working as the arts, and uh, we find uh, now we have a national curriculum in Australia, which is nothing like the UK national curriculum or the British, the sorry English national curriculum, because it, it is just a basic formula for those things that must be taught and 
after a big battle, um, the the arts got in with a little bit of help from uh, the education minister, who was Peter Garrett, the lead singer of uh, uh, Midnight Oil at the time. There happened to be a, a moment. This is one of those moment, one wonderful momentary windows when we got in, and drama has drama has now notionally and pretty well through the primary and secondary schools has got parity with as with as one of five art forms which is uh, um dance drama uh, media arts meaning mainly film and things uh music and visual arts and um in the primary school that is meant to be it's very tough on some little country schools with one teacher and things like that and no resources to, to be able to teach all those five art forms to all their kids. Yeah. But they're managing. And um, that was a, a fantastic triumph that happened sort of over 10 years ago. And we're really now just consolidating that. That's brilliant. Uh, so so we've had, we've had a, a rise. Now, on the other hand, things are now going backwards fast because we have a, 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 co a coalition government that has slashed um, funding for education, slashed uh, funding for, for universities, particularly in humanities. And everything is now being concentrated on um, STEM. Uh, and uh, I mean, to a ludicrous extent, whereas the so that uh, there are attempts to just cut all the arts out of the curriculum. Luckily, the national cur curriculum is there, so they can't. But um, so it goes up and down and we're in a down now. Uh, we were in an up. I, I think that's it as well about, you know, people in drama, drama practitioners, is that we're quite resilient and willing to keep pushing, keep ch chipping away and holding on. Look, I think that's absolutely right. And it's, it is to do with the fact of people like us, I, I take a pat yourself on the back because I'm going to pat myself on the back, that I have um, noticed that because drama training, uh, teacher training tends to be very hands-on and very much um, based on modeling, uh, modeling practice, um, drama teachers are actually better than other teachers. I came across two lots of figures. I never did this, uh, followed this up properly as a research project. I cursed myself. Two, fig two sets of figures, 20 years apart, from our uh, Queensland Education Department of the uh, levels of success of their gra the graduates they were taking into the Depart, uh, into the department. And the sets of figures were two, 20 years apart. They were almost identical in the, um, the rankings of sort of star, fairly star, just about usable, try not to use them, no, you know, that sort of ranking. I, I mean, there were official words for that. Um, 80% of the drama students were getting stars when the average for across all subjects in the curriculum was about 30%, 20 to 30% were getting top billing. 80% uh, of drama students were getting that top billing. So yeah, we are actually better teachers than everybody else. And that's, that's the only reason we've survived, I think. Well, I agree, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. And I'm sorry I can't give you chapter and verse for those figures, but... Um, well, you know, you're right. It's active tough. learning where, I, you know, I was talking about uh, universal design for learning last week and the arts and, you know, that's all. We're already doing a lot of these things that are coming into education. Drama has already kind of already been doing it for years, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's the joy. It's a kind of a bit of um, schadenfreude for us, really. So, look, we're doing, as you say, we're doing this for, for yonks now. Oh, you're coming around to thinking it. Well, what a good idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> welcome uh, to the party. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the party, yes. Um, and so I think it is important to, to remember that, well, to, to keep that practical, question-based, uh, dialogical and... Um, 
yeah, pra just practice-based training as, as central to how we turn out drama teachers. Uh, I agree. And I will we've wound our way to the last part of the podcast and I don't know how because uh, I feel like I could talk to you all day um, so we're on our quick fire round which is the spotlight on um, so John I'd love to know what is your why why do you do it and why should anyone do it and if you could sum it up if you could in three sentences Gosh. that's very short <laughs> I do it because I found it was more fun than not doing it than teaching. I I kind of found my way into teaching. This is not the three senses. This is the um, this is the uh, commentary that goes with the three sentences. But it, I do it because it's more fun than than not doing it as a teacher, and it's more productive than not doing it as a teacher. Uh, uh, so those. Maybe that's that's two things. Uh, that, that's loads of things. That and, 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 and the other thing is, is I'm quickly bored, and um, uh, I, in order to keep the kid, or I need to keep the kids interested in order to keep myself interested, uh, and I also like to be liked by the kids. So all of that is um, really an important part. I think that 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 rapport that. Uh, uh, I do it because of the rapport, I do it because it's fun, and I do it because it's more productive. Mm. Actually, so good. I love listening to people's whys because I really identify with that. Like, I never thought about that before, that I, I also really want to be liked by the kids. You know, I, that's what I love about teaching drama. <laughs> and like you say, it really captivates them. And it is very productive. But mostly as well, like, it's just, it, is, it is very fun to have a very playful job like, like this, isn't it? It's an extraordinary privilege, yeah. And I look at a lot of my colleagues have much drabber lives and um, I'm relieved that I can do it my way. It's given me a great time. Magic. Oh, I love that. And what is your drama strategy or technique that you always go to? Uh, certainly in classroom drama, um, it, teacher in role it's um it's such a wonderful opportunity as long as you don't make i mean there is a always an enormous um temptation uh for to turn the um tour de, the theatrical tour de force or being in role into a a one-man wonder show into an ego trip in fact uh but i think the to you to use no, to be to be able to be part of part of the drama work with the students is fantastic, and in a way, when I'm directing a, a show, I always like to be in the rehearsals, part of part of the action and and in there with them. I, I'm not a um, as a when I do direct shows, I'm very much a democratic director and and um, and, and part of a team. I, I find it very difficult not to be. So, uh, yeah, the teacher in role was the great, and and I got I got my initial training in teacher in role from TIE. I learned how to be I had learned how to be a good actor teacher, as part of relearning how to be a decent teacher, which was happening at the same time uh, with Gavin. Really good point, actually. Um, and then, have you one piece of advice? for other drama practitioners and they can be new drama practitioners but they can also be drama practitioners that have been around for a long time I think I've mentioned it already um, don't be afraid of failure take risks and learn from them that's it actually because that's what I tell my students all, all the time my you know, my adult learners I'm, I'm saying you know just try it you know and I think like even I was do, doing something on mantle of the expert recently and everyone in the lecture was like oh oh no this this sounds terrifying I 
I don't think I don't think yeah. I, was like, I said yeah when I when I first learned about it too I, I also thought it was equally terrifying I still think it's terrifying but I still enjoy it still do it still try it you know what can go wrong only it can go wrong and you know it's not the end of the world no and, and that I mean I think when I the second part of that not just take the risk but the second part is actually learn from it and learn from it by not being afraid to ask other people why it went wrong or what they think might not have worked. So don't be afraid to actually ask, hey, stop and stop the drama saying, well, this isn't working. What, what are we doing wrong? What can we do better? You'd actually uh, ask the, 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 the students, the, the kids. I'm talking about students. Yeah. And I think yeah. that goes for young children as well as university mm. students. You know, yeah. I think, uh, well, certainly goes for university students, of course, because yeah they can learn from your joint failure uh, just as as much as you can but uh, it actually works with with little kids i find that um, if something isn't working they'll call you if, if you're on it if you're honest about it don't try and uh, pull rank and uh, getting getting rid of the power trip was for me the very hardest thing in re reshaping my teacher my my being as a teacher and still every now and again I fall into it I get threatened and um, start and want to want to defend myself by um, uh, by um, being being the boss or no this is no good let's uh, now stop that you know I mean all of that sort of stuff um, what we learned work. though as well isn't it you know you I think a lot of what shapes you as a teacher at the beginning is what you learned yourself as a child from your teachers isn't it um, yes, it is. I happen to have very good, uh, well, particularly English teachers and generally most of the t teachers at my school. Uh, the, the ones who influenced me were, for their time, I think, extraordinarily um, democratic. And as I say, English was going through a what they called the progressive phase where, um, um, where the teachers were. At one, so it wasn't new to me. The idea that teaching is a shared vocation, not a transmissive, not a transmission. Yeah. Oh, I love it. John, we could have a chat all day. I, I, I thank you so much for sharing those really interesting insights and nuggets. And I think you just painted really clear pictures of those kind of scenarios and little kind of snippets of, of your life as a as a, a teacher. Um, so I'd love to I'd love to hear more again, because I think we only just got the, the tip of <laughs> the iceberg there. Uh, so thanks so much for joining me today. And um, hopefully we can have another chat another time. That'd be lovely. And Avian, I would love to do that sometime. But um, anyway, thank you for asking me some very pertinent and uh, full on questions. I appreciate it. And I hope this podcast may be enjoyed by anybody who listens to it. And so uh, all you drama teachers out there, good luck and, uh, enjoy and have fun. Thank you for listening to Hot Seating, the drama education podcast brought to you by the Association of Drama in Education in Ireland. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please tell a friend or two, like and subscribe to hear further conversations.